welcome back to Homefront History. Now, you might remember Andy's appeal from last week, asking about people to uh, contact him if they have any knowledge of anyone who they might have thought was in uh, Section 7. So we thought, why not this week wind him up and let him go and give us a beginner's guide <laughs> to the auxiliary units? Yeah. Well, I thought, so we did the appeal last week and I thought, I guess some people might not have heard me jabbering on about this before, so I have no idea, yeah. no idea mm. what I'm talking about. So, uh, <laughs> so, so let's let's do a a quickish uh, intro into the Yorkshire units um, and uh, how they were formed and what their role was, and then a, a bit of kind of context of where where they sit in the in the kind of overall defensive landscape. Um, nice one. So, I think. People's perceptions of Britain in 1940, which is really the catalyst for this whole podcast, is 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 Dad's army, right? And and unprepared, yeah. bumbling, in, inefficiency. I think. Um, and Depending I, on what season you start with, season oh, yeah. one and two, <laughs> yes, season Correct. three to seven, yeah, they're fools. Yeah. Correct. Correct. Yeah. I, yeah. So I, I think I think there's some and and, and that. Being unprepared thing is is particularly uh, it's like it's like Dunkirk happened and then everyone went oh crap we've got to, we better think about doing something whereas in fact mm. yeah the 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 military and the and the uh, secret services had been had been preparing for for years before and this is where the auxiliary mm. units kind of come from so um, auxiliary units come from two places really uh, first is is SIS so MI six. Um, they had set up something called Section D uh, in the late 30s to basically find alternative ways of fighting an enemy, i.e. the enemy being Germany. Mm. And that included kind of propaganda, intelligence gathering, sabotage, pre-prepared resistance, right? So the British were already thinking about this, but for other countries surrounding Germany. So, for example, the guy in charge of Section D was was a chap called Lawrence Grand. Uh, He was in Czechoslovakia talking to the Skoda works about how they oh. could destroy their factories before the Germans got in there. Right. But this was all happening in kind of 38, 39. So frankly, a bit too late. Right. But the, but the, but the preface of what they were doing is a good one. Right. So alternative ways of fighting enemy, not the traditional warfare, preparing yeah. stuff in advance of something happening. Yeah. But obviously stuff happened uh, and, and they couldn't get it off the ground quick enough, but what they did have then is a kind of blueprint of what might work. And they brought that back to the UK, Grand brought it back, and they reformed part of Section D as the Home Defence Scheme. So HDS was an MI6 programme operating in the UK. So MI6 is obviously the foreign uh, secret service. So they weren't even meant to be doing this stuff. So ultra, ultra secret. Wow. Lawrence Grand and his, and his men very quickly recruited... Um, about a thousand civilians by kind of June, early June 1940. Um, and they were liberally arming them with weapons and explosives without giving them any real training. They <laughs> Is there were... any form of vetting involved at all? Or were uh, they literally just. We don't, know, we don't know much about the HDS scheme. Yeah. My guess would be no, not too much vetting. It was just. I, I've got and an idea of who you are. Here's some guns and, and bombs some to guns. play with. We need, we need to act quickly. Let's get people yeah. armed. Right? You could yeah. be Andy, get in that bunker. Yeah. 
Correct. There's no bunkers yeah. on the stage, right? Oh, no so bunkers, they, right? Okay. They're, they're just cool. they're just they're just burying explosives and weapons around the country, right. um, and then saying to civilians, "When the Germans come, just go out there, do your best." Yeah. yeah. So, wow. G- GHQ got to learn about this. Ironside got to learn about this, and basically went, "What the?" <laughs> because suddenly, <laughs> there was all yeah, all, with all these stuff. It's like explosives buried all over the country. There's bridges and dockyards. Yeah. Explosives, and no one knows where this stuff is, right? So, <laughs> so Ironside's like, Crazy. okay, right, we need to we need to shut this down or yeah. bring it into the thing that I've, we've already started to create, which is the military side. So um, it started with Andrew Thorne, who was um, commanding, I think it was 12 Corps down in the southeast corner. Yeah, Anthony Eden went to go and see him. They had a chat. Uh, Thorne was obviously uh, a bit concerned about the lack of tanks and mobility and stuff like that. Eden arranged a um, a lunch with Churchill. Thorne went up. And during that lunch, Thorne talked about his time as military attaché in Berlin during the mid-30s, how he'd got to learn about the German mili- uh, mili- militia. So small groups of peasants on their like lord's land had buried caches of weapons and a foreign invader came into their land what they didn't have in numbers they made up for in geographical knowledge in the ability to disappear into the landscape all that kind of stuff he thought do you know what this could be a really good thing for britain if germany get if germany invades and obviously churchill loved it because this is like right up churchill street because it's Mm. you know alternative ways of fighting an enemy again so they brought on guy, uh, brought on board a guy called Peter Fleming, the brother of Ian Fleming, the <laughs> James Bond, uh, to start prototype patrols in Kent, obviously a key area of printer invasion. And he yeah. was bringing kind of farmers and farm workers together in small patrols uh, under the name of the 12 Corps Observation Unit. So attached to Thorn's, Thorn's 12 Corps, yeah. but, but being a kind of secret um sabotage cell attached to that and he he began that training he lived at a house called the garth in a village called building in 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 kent and there people from around kent would come and start training in in the in these kind of sabotage in guerrilla warfare and stuff like that so very much mm. in that kind of way that that we don't necessarily reflect in in the traditional narrative of 1940 or the british army at that point this is this is dirty yeah. trick. This is this is mm. like mud in eyes, kicking in bollocks, stabbing in kidneys, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, uh, it's interesting to hear that it's incorporated into the local core as well. So it wasn't it wasn't separate from that. They are clearly part of that command infrastructure as well, aren't they? Then that's really interesting that's to hear. Exactly, exactly right. And yeah, I mean, even their yeah. name tells you that 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 this was seen as part of not a not a kind of isolated terrorist cell. Yeah, they were isolated. But part of that structure, part of the overall yeah. defense structure. Yeah. So, so Fleming started, and and he's 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 successful, and and this looks like a real goer. At about the same time, Ironside's learning about HDS and the carnage that that's causing, and he thought, <laughs> you know what, we're going to join these two groups together, um, and we're we're going to call it something like the auxiliary units, called the auxiliary units because it could basically refer to anything. Yeah. So, if someone overheard you, hears you talking about the auxiliary units, it could be anything, right? Rather yeah. than you know the British resistance or whatever, the super secret bomb squads exactly. team that exactly kill right. Nazis, exactly right. <laughs> exactly right. The Nazi kill squads. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. super secrets. Yeah. See, I was in the pub yesterday and I heard someone talking about this, the Nazi kill squads. Yeah, exactly, that sounds jolly exciting. So, 
that at that point, uh, Colonel Gubbins comes and takes over. Colonel Gubbins, uh, Colin Gubbins, uh, takes over. Royal Engineer. He fought in the First World War. Um, actually, he was in the artillery. Fought in the First World War. But importantly, in the, in in the in between wars, and a lot of the Orcs units had this experience. He had fought in uh, the Allied intervention in the Russian Revolution. He'd fought in India. Most importantly, he'd fought in Ireland in the twenties, um, and 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 you know during during the Irish War of Independence. And that and the IRA actually probably has a lot of influence in in the way that the Orcs units um, train. And, and yeah, I've never thought yeah, about that. Actually. Yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. so big influence, and lot, lots of the officers in the Yorkshire units in those early days had had experience in um, in Ireland. So, so the prototype of Fleming is. Oh, is just sorry to interrupt. Uh, it's similar landscape in Ireland as well. I was just that's yeah. the first thing that sprung to mind. Is it's not just experience of the techniques and stuff. It's experience of operating in a similar landscape as well. That's really really cool. Is that exactly exactly right? So the uh, Gubbins then had the task of obviously taking Fleming's, Fleming's prototype and then extending it the length of the country to the vulnerable areas. So, so this is where SIS MI6 handed it over because it became clear that this group, the HDS-like group, or the sabotage wing of that, was an effective anti-invasion group, right? So that is still within right. military jurisdiction. This isn't stuff that MI6 needs to be getting involved in, as we'll see in other episodes, they, they've got they've got their hands in other pies in terms of post-occupation. So they handed over to the military because it's post it's it's just anti-invasion. It can be brought in as part of the wider defensive plans. So Gobbin's task is to extend these patrols to find patrols in the basically by forty-four the auxiliary units extended from the Orkneys, the east coast of Scotland, northeast coast, east coast, southeast corner, south coast, southwest north coast of Cornwall, Devon, Somerset, and then South Wales. There wasn't anything uh, on that okay. west side because they, they didn't perceive the threat from Ireland as, as, as a major one. It was all yeah. about the threat from, from, from France. Um, and so Gubbins brought together um, intelligence officers, many of whom, oh, Gubbins was part of the independent companies as well that fought in Norway. So he, he had a senior position in that. And so the intelligence officers that he recruited tended to be those he'd fought with in with the independent company so people who had a similar outlook in terms of, of the way that a war can be won or a battle can be won in terms of non-traditional fighting so yeah. these intelligence officers were allocated a county often one they had some kind of um affiliation with uh, and they were sent out uh, with a humper snipe car and a driver to go and find key men in key positions to start or start patrols right so you'd yeah. go to a uh, an area that had like a key bridge over a main road or had a railway that needed, or, you know, that, that had a key interchange of, of, of railways or had a uh, mansion that was likely to be taken as a headquarters by the, by the German yeah. invaders. Um, and then uh, he would then uh, find a key man. So usually like a farmer or a gamekeeper uh, someone with a bit of authority uh, mm. within within their local community, someone with contacts, but importantly, had an intimate understanding of their local surroundings, of their landscape, so could move quietly through the through the fields, knew the lanes like the back of their hand, could do yeah. so at, at night. Then it was up to the patrol leader, this new chap that he brought on board, to, to recruit his patrol. 
They signed the Official Secrets Act, and then it was up to them entirely to recruit their patrol. So the nature of this and the secrecy meant they would recruit colleagues and friends and Mm. family, people who they could trust, number one. Yeah, it's pretty much self-vetting, isn't it? Exactly. um, Exactly right. And So, for example, gamekeepers would would recruit poachers because they knew that poachers knew the land intimately, probably better than they did, and they could set traps and they could and they had no compunction in in, in killing or being slightly outside of the law, right? So, so they're all good qualities for for an auxiliar to have. Um, so once they'd once they'd picked their their patrol, um, they'd also signed the Official Secrets Act, and uh, then essentially their 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 role was to to wait and train. When the Germans came, if the Germans came, they would wait until the German army was more or less on top of them. So they wouldn't, they wouldn't, they wouldn't become active as soon as the Germans. So, so patrols in Cornwall wouldn't become active if the Germans invaded Kent, right? They would wait until until they'd until they'd get down to to, to their area. Once that had happened, their role is to is to to disappear, right? So, so these guys were, as I say, kind of late thirties, early forties. A lot of family men. They would have to leave their wives and family at the most yeah. vulnerable point you can. As an invading army enters your town and village, these guys would have to disappear, and your family would have no idea where you've gone. They would go to their secret uh, operational base bunker, which I'll talk about later, mm. and from there they would literally wait for the German army to go over the top of them. In some cases. They weren't, and then at night come out and attack. This isn't about taking on the German army head on, right? This isn't about gun battles. This is about slowing down the advance. This is about stopping the Blitzkrieg that happened in Low Countries and France. So this is the the success of the Blitzkrieg, as it as it was termed, was the frontline troops flying through, but most importantly, being backed up by a supply chain. So the, so the frontline troops were regularly armed with, you know, got fresh ammo, all that kind of stuff. Mm. The role of the auxiliary units is to hit that supply chain. So they they would allow the frontline troops to go over the top of them and then come out. And then they would hit ammo and fuel dumps, blow up bridges, blow up railways, get into airfields, blow up any aircraft in there, destroy country houses that have been taken as local HQs by the Germans, assassinate German officials, assassinate British collaborators. Anything that was helping the the advance continue, they would they would shut it down. As such, these guys had enough rations for two weeks, wow. and that was essentially their life expectancy once the Germans had entered their area. So it was a, it was a suicide mission, and they they all kind of really understood wow. that and got their heads around that uh, at early doors. So their role was was yeah essentially to slow down this advance, do anything they could to to slow it down. And because they only had two weeks, they had yeah. such a short amount of time, it was considered to be effective. Anything that would shorten that amount of time, they would have to get rid of immediately, right? So, for example, there's an auxilia auxilia still alive, still with us, called Ken Welch, great guy. Um, two things about Ken. One, he was 16 when he joined in 1943, late joiner. He joined because he'd followed his dad one night, followed him to the operational base, yeah. and then his dad had a decision to make. Bring his son into the patrol or add him to a list of people that would have to be assassinated as soon as the Germans entered their area. Mm. Because, because Ken had found the operational base, right? 
Kemp was brought into the patrol. The other thing this patrol had to do if the Germans came into their area was there was an elderly couple in a cottage overlooking their operational base. They'd seen it being dug. They'd seen the guys go in and out. As soon as the Germans came, the patrol's first victims, as it were, was to go yeah. up the hill and assassinate this elderly couple. Because if the Germans had got hold of them, they'd be like, there's something going on down there. That would shorten the two-week window. They've got to be effective. So utterly ruthless. Equally, Ken's dad recruited him into the patrol, obviously, didn't add him to the list. If Ken had got injured or anyone else in that patrol had got injured out on patrol, yeah. you can't let that man be captured yeah. as a patrol because he knows where your operational base is and he knows the other members of the patrol. So he would he would have to be left with enough weapons uh, and explosives yeah. to do some German some damage and then kill himself, oh. or you'd have to basically dispatch him yourself. And when you think about the types of people that the patrol leader was recruiting, i.e., friends, yeah. family, colleagues, God, that's a that's a massive ask. Mm. So in this the level of sorry, so oh. in this two week period, there's no there's no liaison with anyone else. They're just acting independently. Correct. You're, yeah. So really good point. Yeah. So so mm. once they once they'd gone underground, there's no orders coming in. Wow. There's no there's no here's your next target. They yeah. they. They were told during training, you have to go out every night. Every night you have to go out and destroy something. So they would have obviously they'd obviously have a list of kind of pre-picked targets. So airfield, house, railway, yeah. bridge, road, bridge, whatever. But then as they were out at night, they would also look for new targets. Uh, they'd have a man in a uh, observational post during the day often up a hill or halfway up a hill, looking over the landscape where they could pick up, well, actually that convoy's parked over there. We we can hit we can hit that. Um sorry, phone's going. We can hit that um tonight. So let's let's go and let's go and hit that get go and hit those trucks or ammo or fuel dump or whatever it is. Um so uh yeah every night they're out and it's a you know it's a massive ask. You are under massive pressure every night to go out and basically risk your life. Basically, you've got two weeks and you no way you're going to last that long because soon the Germans, one, yeah. will see what the, you know, understand that something's happening here, which is good because it slows them down. It makes them stop, makes them having to deal with that issue before they move on. Right? So that's a good thing. Yeah. And diverts Exactly right. Well. Ties down troops. But two, yeah. it puts your local community at risk because you are disappeared. Three, it puts your family mm. at risk because you are very obviously missing a head of household from that mm. family and there's a massive spotlight on them suddenly so it's a, it's a huge sacrifice yeah. these guys were were willing to make and actually you know I was, I was saying um earlier today that that when we get to speak to them and if we're that's increasingly rare obviously they they're not like bloodthirsty killers any of these guys they are they are modest um, humble guys um, yeah. who understood the bigger picture, who understood, actually, yeah. I am sacrificing my life. I'm potentially sacrificing the life of my family. But if Britain falls, where's the liberation going to come from? France and Germany, uh, France and yeah. Belgium and low countries and Poland, they, with Britain remaining unconquered, there's always the light of liberation there there's there's somewhere where liberation can come from britain goes yeah that is a you know the atlantic ocean's a massive <laughs> massive space in between yeah. 
and unless you know and, and you know unless yeah. russia changes size as it was in 1940 then then yeah. then then that's not going to happen and so so an inv- you know, a counter invasion by canada and america seems so far-fetched and yeah exactly exactly it just doesn't it's not going to happen you know what i mean exactly right <laughs> it's not really yeah, it's not an option is it yeah so they understand that bigger picture so the you know it may a lot of stories around the auction it sounds brutal and and bloodthirsty but it but it's not it's it's a it's a massive sacrifice that they were willing to make and their families unknowingly uh were 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 making as well so as i said these guys would disappear and they disappear to their secret underground bunkers and this is i mean this stuff is cool right this is this is what got me into this stuff this is yeah. this is unbelievable <laughs> so they so <laughs> So initially, uh, a patrol would build um, their uh, operational base OB themselves. But unless you had like a particular set of skills within your patrol, living and breathing underwater, uh, underground is, is quite hard, right? Yeah. So they are usually very successful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Then they got Royal Engineer groups to come and dig them for them. So you'd either bring in like a Canadian Royal Engineer group or you'd bring in... So if you're digging them in Devon, you'd bring someone in from 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 Yorkshire or somewhere. Yeah, who would come in, build them quickly, and then get out again. So if the Germans came, there'd be no Royal Engineers in that county. You could go and say, "Well, it's one there, one there, one there, one there." Um, yeah, yeah. So there's no threat. So actually, and sorry, I should go back. Another point on the ruthlessness is uh, a lot of patrols were apparently issued with lists of people they would have to assassinate as soon as the Germans came to their area. So that might be the local policeman who had to check their names um, to join the auxiliary units. He wouldn't know that what they were joining, but he'd see the names together. It would definitely it would definitely be the intelligence officer who gathered all these guys together because he would know where every operational base is in the county and who every member of the patrol would be. So yeah. one patrol job would be to get rid of the, the intelligence You're trying officer. to keep the secrecy as much as you yeah. can, aren't you? you exactly. Maximise the amount of time you can operate, like yeah. you're saying. That's it makes exactly complete right. sense. It's horrible to think, but it yeah. does make sense. Yeah, it's it stops the um stops the Germans rolling up that network as well. It's cutting, it's creating a big gap between the person at the top and the people at the bottom. Exactly. Isn't it? So they can't each, just each patrol is siloed, yeah. right? So there's no connection between patrols. The yeah. patrols don't know where each other are. Yeah. They don't know whether each other's OBs are, especially in 1940. So each patrol mm. is a siloed, essentially terrorist cell, and yeah. acting completely independently. Going back to the operational bases, so so the engineers would come and and there's a there's a Obviously, it's like pillboxes. There are local variations depending on you know what the soil's like, where they're digging, all that kind of stuff. But essentially, yeah. an operational base is a is a hatch that is flush to the ground. It's either a counterweight system which you stamp on, it flips up, swivels round, or it's open from the inside. In which case, you'd have a coloured marble. You'd roll down what looks like mm. a rabbit hole, go into the bunker. They know you're there, or you'd pull what looks like a tree root, but actually you're ringing a bell. In the bunker, loads of ingenious ways of getting with the toast machine. Yeah, it reminds me of that. I don't know why. <laughs> yeah, and, it, and it's yeah. you know ingenious, really. What to do in an air raid? Get under cover at once. Don't stand staring at the sky. Take cover at once. Hatch comes up in whatever way you, you get in. There's a la- there are there's like a square meter by meter um hole in the ground with kind of pegs in the corner 
which you can use as a ladder going down. Then you're confronted usually by a blast wall. So if the Germans somehow find you, open the hatch, drop a grenade down, the main patrols yeah. protected from the blast and the concussion. And then you're into the main chamber, which has got the bunks, which you sleep in during the day, tables, um, water, um, that kind of stuff. Sometimes there's a kitchen. Yeah. Obviously, cooking's not ideal. So um, they would um, have a fake tree, a hollow tree, and put a chimney in it, which would vent the smoke above the tree line. So it you know, doesn't obviously give away the, where the operational yeah. base is. Uh, then further back is a kind of chemical toilet, which would be horrific. Uh, um, you know, eight nervous men <laughs> in a bunker. That's not not going to be nice. Uh, yeah, yeah, With exactly. An and then um, some storage. Lots of patrols didn't sensibly didn't uh, store their explosives in their operational base. They'd have a separate store somewhere, some some way away. Um, and then an yeah. escape tunnel, usually, uh, which can lead kind of 10, 15 meters away with a kink in. Um, essentially, that's there for. Uh, morale because if your operational base is found by the Germans you, you, you're pretty much done for yeah. so that's where these yeah. guys would go and then they would yeah. stay there for these two weeks come out every night destroy stuff um, and and you know do as much as they can in a short amount of time to to effectively slow down slow down the German advance arms is an interesting one because um, Churchill so in the early days Gubbins who knew Ironside because they'd been in Russia together meant that they he Gubbins could get hold of lots of arms that maybe the LDV and in some cases the regular army weren't getting hold of early doors. Churchill was obviously also a big admirer and kept an eye on the Yorks units. Duncan Sandys, his brother, his son-in-law had a hand in the Yorks units as well. And I, and, and, and Gubbins was sending Ironside and Churchill updates regularly. And on one of these updates, Churchill scribbled all of these men must have revolvers. So, so mm. the the Smith and Wessons and stuff, the stuff that was coming over from the New York Police, often went to the Yorks units rather than Home Guard or regular army. So that yeah. that went straight to those guys. But guns aren't great for Yorks units because you don't want to get into it. You don't want to be firing mm. a weapon that lets the enemy know exactly where you are. So most of their weapons, most of their personal weapons, yeah. were silent weapons. So Fairburn Sykes fighting knife, homemade daggers, knob curries, stuff like that. Stuff that could yeah. you could essentially a weapon that would allow you to silently dispatch a sentry who was guarding the thing you needed to go and destroy. Right? So you mm. you you'd, yeah. you'd kill the sentry, you'd you'd mutilate his body, leave him horrifically so so his mates could find him in the morning, blow up the thing and get out before you're discovered to allow you to have another night of doing that somewhere else. So the weapon, weapons are important, but 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 usually silent weapons and utterly brutal, horrific. They had uh, 0.22 sniper rifles, um, which were for two things: potentially living off the land. Obviously, gamekeepers, poachers, stuff. You can you can get your own get your own meal, uh, but also for that assassination role as well. If the British collaborators helping the German army move quickly through. It's, it's process get rid of that collaborator there's there's there are patrols situated almost on top of the houses of british union of fascist members for so for example in um <laughs> in branscombe near where i live there were the family called the cottons who were prominent buf members uh they had um von riptropen uh, stay at their house um 
uh, in the late 30s. They'd, they'd personally met Hitler. Um, the son was a kind of recruiter for the BUF. And the Branscombe's Patrol is like a stone's throw away from the Cotton's house. So you know damn well, as soon as the Germans got anywhere near Branscombe, yeah. those Cottons were done. Uh, so we've got a patrol. We've got an operational base. They're, they're really well armed. So you need to train these guys how to be effective as well, because we are some of these guys were ex First World War. But what we're talking about now is an entirely different type of warfare. Right. This isn't this isn't pitched battle. This isn't guns versus guns. This is guerrilla warfare. This is sabotage. This is dirty tricks. Um, so they were initially the headquarters was in London. Not very good for training secret uh, army. Uh, and the Blitz was was happening, you know, at, at the late part of 14 to 41. So they moved to Coles Hill House, which is this, um, it was a, a, a Georgian or Palladium mansion um, in the tiny hamlet of Coles Hill, which is near Highworth, kind of near Swindon. Mm. And a couple of members yeah. of each patrol would be invited up fairly regularly for a weekend of training, right? So they'd get a letter saying, you've got to come to, for training at, at Coles Hill House. You've got to come for training, get a train to Highworth railway station, get off at Highworth and make your way to the post office in Highworth High Street. You go to the post office, you give the postmistress this password. So they go in to to the post office, they'd meet Mabel Stranks, the postmistress. They'd give them the password, something like, I want two first class stamps or whatever. I mean, probably not that because... (laughs) <laughs> there'd be a lot of random people getting sent there um <laughs> something like that uh she'd then go out the back she'd then go out the back phone up Coles Hill house and say i've got some more of your chaps here they'd send a truck round to the back of the post office pick these boys up pull down the curtains yeah. of the truck and drive a massively convoluted route to Coles Hill house so they had by the time they ended up there they'd have no idea where they are like not a clue. And whilst yeah. they were there, yeah. they would receive training and everything that we need to know. So there's with there's a there's a bunker there, an operational base that they dug to allow these guys to spend large amounts of time underground and get used to to to, to being underground mm. and living underground. They were trained in in unarmed combat, they trained in explosives, they had German tanks there, they had German planes there. So they'd have patrols. Oh. You know, you'd start obviously you don't know where you are, but they'd drop them somewhere in the middle of nowhere, give them a map at night. You've got to get to here, place your explosives and get away. So they'd, they'd track through night, um, get to the place where these uh, German planes and tanks were. They'd been taught where to place the explosives to be most effective, get away if they could and have other patrols kind of protecting, protecting it as well. So, so they'd have all, all these skills over a weekend, um, which is, which is great. However, because, you've signed the official secrets act you can't tell anyone where you're going right you can't tell anyone actually i'm yeah. going to go and do a load of explosives training um so <laughs> uh loads of auxilia's wives thought husbands were having affairs because they were disappearing a lot of weekends they, they couldn't tell them why <laughs> these guys also obviously weren't in the home guard they weren't at their local monday service they weren't parading so, but they're kind of, you know, fit young men. So that often they were perceived not to be doing their bit. So lots of them got white, white feathers yeah, because they weren't, you know, but they couldn't say anything because they'd all signed this bloody official secrets act. Yeah. Um, as kind of time um, 
went on and, and the threat of invasion diminished or the threat changed, I think, as we've discussed, they, mm. they, um, you, it's weird, isn't it? Because you think, why do we need them? But actually they, they, um, changed their role as kind of home guarded into kind of anti, um, anti raiding. So, so in fact, as the, as into yeah. 41, 42, auxiliary patrols weren't reduced they were increased so more patrols were brought into especially up the northeast coast for like an anti anti-raiding role mm. uh, also i think and they had well, like, we just to quickly we 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 can see the war as a whole like we've yeah. got hindsight they don't in yeah. Yeah. 1941 100%. you know the germans could type turn the tide and they wouldn't know that so it, it makes complete sense to do what they did we always about going why are they doing that it makes no sense yeah. well We've got a, we've got an overview. They yeah, haven't. they didn't. Yeah, they didn't know where the you know, especially as we covered in the um, you know, in, in the one I did, um, the commanders in chiefs and the people in charge at the time didn't know where the invasion yeah. was going to come from. From and there was the potential that it could hit the entire entire coastline, you know, and pretty yeah, much anywhere also, in the country. Yeah, and like I say, it's the hindsight thing, isn't it? It really does. It really kind does. Of because because they, they they had no idea whether the German invasion of Russia. Was going to be. I mean, initially it looked like they're going to they're going yeah. to do that as well. And then suddenly, if they if they've got Russia, the whole of the intention of the German army is suddenly back on Britain. And and you know that's you don't you don't know the yeah. outcome of that until you know right late in the war. So you know, as you say, hindsight's a yeah. is a wonderful thing. But they also had other roles. So for example, um, patrols in and around Scotland and the north of England would go to Balmoral when the royal family were there, and they would protect the royal family once they were in residence at Balmoral from from kind of right. specialist troops coming in and kidnapping them and taking them away. So they would they would be in the forest around. And actually the Queen and Princess Margaret, um, or Princess Elizabeth, uh, as the Queen was then, uh, would go and try and find these guys. They called the they would nickname them the fighting farmers and they'd go and find them, which kind of pissed off the patrols a bit, because if the Queen found them, Princess Margaret found them, they'd have to move, they'd have to move all their yeah. stuff, stuff and find a new find a new place to, <laughs> to kind of hang out. Um, oh, so they did stuff like that. Um, in the uh, uh, later in the war, patrols, um, as I think I said before, were sent to the Isle of Wight to protect the Isle of Wight to 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 boost the Home Guard and the and the regular troops there. Um, and they'd come from all over the country uh, to, to 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 do that. Um, so their kind of their role changed, and actually, it's, as the as the war went on, the the regular army got more control of it. So it it turned from. From a kind of real guerrilla sabotage force in 1940 so mm. by the kind of ups and downs but kind of 42 43 they were trying to introduce like square bashing i mean it's like mental i mean what <laughs> what are you trying to achieve by doing that um yeah and they got uniforms <laughs> and you know insignia and stuff um uh and they weren't stood down till november 44 so you know a really long time to 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 be maintaining operational bases for retraining, and but by this point, you have now got yeah, yeah. a really highly trained bunch of guys. We think about six and a half thousand men joined up between forty forty four. Wow, really, really highly wow. trained bunch of guys, um, who could be really useful in some other potential future conflicts. Right. So, mm. in about forty three, some someone's gone round and started listing. Or asking for the names and addresses of auxiliary unit members, writing them down. So this is how we've got a list, right? 
of the members and it's in the national archives and the official secrets act on that kind of ran out in the early 2000s so we get hold of it um so we've got this list of of names and addresses the crazy thing not crazy they're of that generation these guys if they sign the official secrets act they're going to keep Stum, no matter what so we've got this list of, so a really good example of that yeah. is in Dorset a guy who fairly recently passed away we contacted him he still lived in the same house as he did during the war he still obviously still got the same name Amazing. Right? Him, and we said look we know you're in the auxiliary units we've got this evidence we'd love to hear more about your time in it and he's like in what Orcs what I've no idea what you're talking about mate oh. like, wrong guy <laughs> bless Completely. his eye <laughs> Yeah. Wow. Like, not, not talking to you not talking to you God. most most auxiliaries 80 85 percent went to the grave without telling anyone anything mm. so even now i'm yes. telling relatives yeah your dad wasn't in the home guard which they quite often use as a cover uh he was he was yeah. he was in the auxiliary units and was a highly trained saboteur and assassin do you know what I mean it, it, it still it still blows God. understandably blows people's minds because they literally said nothing and and they you know what they might say is like, yeah. you know I was in a um, as I said during my appeal like in the last episode I was in like a specialist home guard I was in the SAS home guard but most of the time as I said relatives would be thinking yeah whatever <laughs> you're not you're, you're not one of yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. yeah. you've got a bit mental in your old age <laughs> do you know what I mean and and so they wouldn't take it seriously. <laughs> And it's only now that we've got these names and I'm talking to them. And they're like, oh, fuck, we should have spoken to them. We should have taken them more seriously. Yeah. Um, yeah. So they, <laughs> they, took, they took that really seriously. At the end of the war, um, the army regulars were meant to come and take the explosives, take the weapons and, and destroy the operational bases. Um, the nature yeah. of operational bases is they're a bugger to find. Uh, <laughs> and they're in the middle of nowhere often so so most most operational bases were shut by their patrol in november 44 and just left right uh often packed with explosives often with weapons still increasing mm. in, in 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 boxes um so lots lots of examples in the years after the war of um tractors falling through the collapsing roof of a of an operational mm. base or cows falling through it of <laughs> of um work happening and and so the road between it's a story i always tell between Exeter and plymouth widening the road jcb digging a massive hole old bloke running up the hill saying don't bloody dig any further stop because it's about to go through the roof of this operational base still stacked with explosives this is in the 1970s right <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. God. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's crazy there's a guy in let me find these figures there's a guy in um essex he was a he was a section uh a uh group commander so had um act so was in in charge of five kind of five or six patrols in his area um and oh, wow. in the 1960s he phoned up uh, the police saying, I've got one or two bits left after the war. Would you mind? I thought the army were going to come and get them, but they haven't. Would you mind, please, um, coming to pick them up? So this guy, uh, group commander in Essex in the 1960s, phones up the police. I've got a few bits left over from the war. Thought the army were going to come and pick them up. They haven't. Would you mind coming to just take them away? Please, like, yeah, no problems. Please turn up at his farm. Yeah. They're like, Oh shit! <laughs> we're gonna need 
We're going to need to get some specialists in because in his in his barn, this guy had the spare stuff that his patrols didn't immediately need during the war that he could then, um, you know, they could then then resupply if necessary. And in his barn, he had one thousand two hundred and five pounds of explosives, three thousand seven hundred and forty two <laughs> feet of delayed action fuse, nine hundred and thirty feet of safety fuse, one hundred and forty four time pencils, one thousand two hundred and seven long delay switches, one thousand two hundred and seventy one detonators, seven hundred and nineteen booby traps. 314 paraffin bombs, 131 fog signals, 121 smoke bombs, 36 slabs of gun cotton, 333 uh, time pencils made up as booby traps. Wow. That's the spares oh. in his barn, right? So, Just a bit. So you can imagine. Bloody hell. Can you imagine the face of the police as they go, I open this barn and I'm like, Jesus. Yeah, there's enough explosive and ammunition there to start. Yeah. Unbelievable. And, and, you know, we get it all the time. Well, not all the time. You know, we. I'll I'll get an email from a from someone who's clearing out Granddad's garage, and and they'd take a picture of something leaking out of a box, and I'd be like, "You need to get the bombs put <sighs> in there, sharpish, yeah. because that's you know that is probably explosive left over." But, yeah. that, but that, that's it. They just shut down. They just went back to their ordinary lives, and they said nothing to anyone not even their friendly friend family and friends and they got a letter at the end of the war at stand down saying basically thanks for your time chaps you did really well you're not getting any public recognition that's it not getting any um probably because they were useful and potentially could be used in a future conflict so they didn't want to go to go around what all they auxiliary Mm. units got which they had to pay for themselves was a small lapel badge um which was given to patrol leaders to then distribute to, to their men, which is often quite a good indicator for families that their family member was involved in the auction units because it's often in granny's button box or something like that. He's just, just left it there. Mm. Really good. So Ken Welsh, yeah. the guy who's in Cornwall, still alive, I spoke to him the other day and he said that he used to wear his in the 50s. He attended an event at a hotel. And as he said, he went to go and point Percy at the porcelain. Um, and another chap stood next to him also with a lapel badge on, with the stand down lapel. They didn't say anything to each other, they just nodded in acknowledgement, didn't know each other, and then just left. And because you know, no one else knows what that lapel badge is, it's only people in the auction units, but even then they can't talk to each other because they've signed the official secrets. Yeah. Wow. That's incredible. God. We have this weird pride in 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 as I said at the start, bumbling inefficiency of of of, of dad's army of home guard mm. of of what we perceive Britain to be like in 1940. The auxiliary units are a, a much better indicator of what Britain was like in, mm. in 1940. N- not not unprepared, not yeah. weak, and but utterly utterly brutal, yeah. ruthless, and would have been incredibly ruthless in the execution of the defense of this country and 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 you know alongside the other yeah. stuff that we talked about the regulars and the tas being there in strength having the stop lines pushing the germans in the direction we want with the you know in in, in terms of being able to then bring down the the mobile reserve to to attack them then bring in the auxiliary units who are yeah. then attacking the rear at that at that point as well suddenly yeah. The defensive plan makes starts to make a lot more sense, and you can see it in that wider context. So actually, the Yorkshire units are slowing down the advance. 
the advancements being pushed in the way that we want them to. The mobile reserves are coming to hit the front. The auxiliary units are hitting the, are hitting the yep. rear. And you've got the home guard and the regulars and the TAs hitting the middle. It, it, it suddenly starts to make a, a, a lot more sense. Yep. Um, so, yeah, we should have a new pride, a new pride yep. in, in, in Britain's preparedness, in Britain's ruthlessness, in, 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 in these guys um, unrecognised um, and, and um, underappreciated uh, role that they would have played and the sacrifice that them and their families un unwittingly were, were, were mm. yeah yeah 100%. really quick run through of the yeah. units oh, there. thanks Andy that's incredible stuff no, and if you want to learn more about uh, anything like that yeah. Andy uh, published a book uh, last year called Britain's Secret Defences and it's out there and available now for, for everyone to enjoy and purchase and I understand you've got another book on the go Andy because you keep saying it every week <laughs> 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 so maybe, maybe just, uh, that was that was our low blow um just um maybe just quickly explain to people what your new book's about before we before we go for this week yeah so the new the new book um kind of partly inspired like us getting together really because the new book is is yeah. on obviously the secret stuff the orcs units and special duties branch and section seven which we'll talk about at a later stage but also putting that secret stuff in the in the wider context to understand Britain purely in that time, just doing 1940, what position we were in 1940, actually how strong we were, yeah. what the regulars and TAs were up to, why pillboxes are important and not just a standalone feature in the, in the, mm. in the, in the landscape. And then a bit on the kind of, yeah. so basically it's about the known unknowns. So, so, so we think we know about pillboxes, regulars, TAs, home guards, because we don't, we don't know any of that stuff really. I'm going to do a bit on the uh, Air Royal Air Force, but not a bit on Dowding, but but mainly on the role of kind of coastal command and bomber commands. That's completely unappreciated. Nice. Um, then I'm going to do yeah. stuff on Royal Navy, which is the number one service in the UK, which would have stopped Operation Sea Line. But so so do stuff on Scarborough Flow and, and the Home Fleet, but also do stuff like on Harry Tate's Navy. So the so the kind oh, of basically cool. the Home Guard. Yeah, of like naval home guards. Yeah, a little bit. Of, of, <laughs> and then the home had their own river patrol boats and things. It's really it it's all yeah, confusing. The upper Thames patrol, yeah, stuff but, like that. So, so, that, so, yeah. essentially, what trying to get rid of that, you know, unprepared week and all that kind of stuff. Mm. But, but talk about elements that perhaps we don't yeah. think about or or, or or discuss. So that sounds like a great follow-on. So, but we'll keep tabs on Andy yeah. for that one, and then you'll all know when it comes out. So, uh, yeah, again, thanks for listening to Homefront History. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter and Facebook. Drop a review on whatever you're listening. It really helps us show out. And we'll catch you again next week. Bye, everyone. Thanks, guys.